we're excited about the possibilities of Hanukkah coming and joining our staff, and we look forward to this coming week when she will be on Zoom calls with a number of our parents and families and children as they uh, get to know her a little bit and feel her heart, and she gets to know us a little bit. And we hope to let you know in a very short time uh, what uh, the future is with regard to our staffing. But it's been a couple of weeks of God answering our prayers. He's led us to Hanukkah, we believe. Uh, we called Gary uh, Coop to come and be our senior pastor, and we're looking forward to him coming. And just on a real personal note for Don and I, uh, we listed our house last week, and it sold, and uh, now we're looking at the next stage, which is buying a house in Campbell River and, and a move there in May sometime. But it's Valentine's Day, and we're going to read some scripture that applies to that in some ways. It uh, won't be apparent till the end, but let's hear God's word as we continue reading through this book of John. And today we're in John chapter 6. Sorry, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me. That man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Father God, as we come and we read your word, we pray that you would speak to us this morning afresh. Father, each week before we, we preach, we ask that same prayer, that you would come and you would just help us to understand both what this text meant in its time, but also what it means for us today. And Father, this morning we pray that you would reveal both of those things to us. Help us to understand it, but help us to know how to apply it as well. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a long family day weekend, it's Valentine's Day, it's teacher's convention, it's a big weekend if you have kids, uh, you've had a five day weekend with the kids home, or at least you will by tomorrow. Uh, for the rest of us, you get tomorrow off, and with COVID, it's kind of hard to tell, but at least we know today is Valentine's Day, 
And Valentine's Day has just been that day traditionally we've set aside to especially tell the people that we're close to, the people that we love, how special they are to us. And uh, it's this time where many of us as men will go out and buy flowers and we'll buy a card that has this saying in it that we will never say ourselves. But it's a way of uh, trying to tell our loved ones we do love them, even if we can't ever say it. And this morning, we're going to look at this passage about this man that was uh, healed. And it appears to have nothing to do with Valentine's Day. But by the end, I think we'll see that, that it does tie in. And uh, let's just take a look at the story. And let's try and work our way through it. Story starts really simply. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He seems to be oscillating back and forth. The last stories we saw of him were up in Galilee. Now he's down in Jerusalem. He's kind of wandering around the city, it seems, on this day. And he comes to the pool of Bethesda, which, as you can see in this reconstruction on the screen, was really two pools. Uh, it had a porch around the outside of all, both of them, and then one down the middle separating them. And that's the five porches that John talks about in that story. And there was a belief that from time to time an angel would come and would stir up the water. And the first person who could get into the water after that would be healed. That's some of the background to the story of this man who's, who's lying there and why he says that he just can't ever get in fast enough to get healed. And obviously uh, something like that just attracts a lot of people. So uh, the, the colonnades, the porches are full of people who are lying there waiting for their turn to be healed. And into that, Jesus comes. And in the midst of all these people, he sees this guy. And he just sort of seems to just focus in on him. And kind of like a little cruise missile, he just cruises right into him. And he's been an invalid, it says, for 38 years. And Jesus is about to heal him. But, but in John, just parenthetically, it always seems that in John, the miracles Jesus does are not just the run of the mill. They're always the ones that have a, uh, an extra degree of difficulty, as they used to say in the diving, you know, in the Olympics. Uh, points for degree of difficulty. So um, it's a long time illness, 38 years. He feeds people, but it's like 5,000 plus women and children. He uh, raises Lazarus, but Lazarus has to be dead for four days before he does it. Uh, he heals the centurion's servant in the immediately preceding story, but he does it at a distance. Everything seems to have that degree of difficulty in John. And so John, Jesus comes and he asks the man a question. Very simple question. Do you want to get well? Uh, first of all, we're surprised that you would ask a sick person, do you want to get well? But the second thing you might notice is he does, the man doesn't answer the question. He answers a similar question. But he says, uh, in your notes there, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm still going down the steps, another one gets in before me. And instead of answering the question, does he want to get well, he answers the question, why he can't get well. And he's obsessed with his need. And I just wonder sometimes if uh, that's true of us. You know, what, uh, what he says in, in, in the Greek, which isn't that different from the English, he says, I have no man to put me in. And yet he's looking at the man who can heal him, and he doesn't recognize him. The man who is the answer to his illness is standing there, and his comment is, I have no man. Well, 
Jesus doesn't seem to get in any kind of dis discussion with him. He simply gives him three commands. Again, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up, pick up your mat or your bed, and walk. Now, if we know three things about this guy, we know he cannot get up, he cannot pick up his bed, and he can't walk. But he tries. To his credit, he tries, and he does get up, and he does pick up his bed, and he does walk. I wonder if, like me, throughout your life, you've kind of prayed prayers to God. And God sort of comes back at you, and he says something to you. And we hear what he says, but it seems impossible. I know I've done that, and my response is, I get frozen. I pray about something, and God says, do this, and it's impossible. And I kind of say no to God I can't do that and he says to me well do you want to get well do you want an answer to your prayer and then I try to do it and it is possible after all and the thing I learned from that and this is just kind of a, a takeaway at the beginning of the sermon but the thing I learned from these experiences is that I need to do whatever I hear God telling me to do whether I think it's possible or not and I think this is worth writing down. Hey, here's the reason why. I need to do what God tells me to do, whether I think it's possible or not, because God's Spirit makes possible what God commands. God's Spirit makes possible what God commands. I think a little miracle happens each time we obey God. God just stretches us out and says, Do you believe that I can help you do this? Well, that's what happens to the invalid. Uh, Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. The man gets up, he takes up his bed, and he starts to walk away. And it could be the end of the story, but I mean, who wants a sermon this long? So let's go on with what John does, because two-thirds of the story comes after this point. It's just the action that launches, actually, the plot for this chapter. Because what happens is it turns out that this is on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day uh, in Jewish thought, Friday night, Saturday, where God had commanded them to rest. And the rabbis had taken that very seriously. In fact, they had kind of spelled it out. And they had in their kind of um, teaching 1,521 different things you could not do all divided into 39 categories. I just think if you wanted to do it, it's probably not on the list of approved things. Um, and one of the things is don't pick up your bed and walk through the city of Jerusalem. And if you know anything about Orthodox Jews, they still follow these today. So one of the things is you can't light a fire on, a, on the Sabbath, which means they don't drive their cars because with an internal combustion engine, a gas engine, it works by fire. Uh, they can't cook because even though they now use an electric stove, it's still a fire. In Jerusalem, when we were there in the hotels on the Sabbath day, 
Um, they have Sabbath elevators, which just stop at every floor because to push your specific button would be work. So you just get in and it goes up. Apparently the going up part isn't work, but, uh, but pushing the button would be. But, but there's all these rules and the Pharisees catch this guy carrying his bed. And funny enough, that's one of the things. You're not supposed to carry your bed through the streets of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And they confront him on it, and he quickly blames Jesus. You know, the guy who healed me told me this. Um, and they ask, well, who is this guy? And strangely enough, he hadn't even bothered to figure out who Jesus was. But when he does find out Jesus' name, he's very quick to come back and try and clear his own name by giving them Jesus' name. And he sort of, I don't know, it almost seems like he rats them out a little bit. You know, he just kind of... Uh, sells Jesus' name to the authorities to get himself off the hook. Well, that's the first 15 verses. As I said, this is a 45-verse chapter, so we got two-thirds of the story still to come. And as we launch in that final two-thirds of it, the man disappears. He's no longer part of the story. It's now between these Jewish leaders and Jesus. And Jesus is defending himself for this healing on the Sabbath. And he's defending who he thinks he is. And he's in deep trouble. As John says in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And that word persecuting is a pretty hard word. It's the start of this increasing opposition that will continue to grow through to the end of the book where Jesus will be crucified. And the Jews were mad at Jesus primarily because they saw the Sabbath as being a crucial commandment to obey. In fact, the Pharisees taught that if you broke the Sabbath commandment, the Jewish nation could be sent back into exile. If you remember back in 586 B.C., um, the, uh, the Babylonians came and took them away into exile. And they based that on a verse from Jeremiah where it says, If you don't listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. In other words, someone will come and burn the city down and take you all away and you'll go into exile. And so the, the Jewish leaders took the Sabbath thing really, really seriously. And so they were super angry about what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. And when he, they confront Jesus about it, Jesus defends himself not by saying he didn't do it, but by saying that he was the Son of God, the Father, and he was allowed to. And his defense only makes things worse, at least in the Pharisees' eyes. And in verse 18, it says, that was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So Jesus then tries, and this is what the rest of this chapter is about, is he tries to explain who he was and why he came. And he tries to explain, you know, kind of what's the backstory to the fact that he would heal a guy on the Sabbath. And 
he says this to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And Jesus in that verse is sort of saying, I'm an apprentice to God. Whatever I see the father doing, I do. You remember Jesus was born um, to Mary and Joseph. Uh, Joseph was his stepfather because Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. But, but Joseph was a carpenter. And at uh, one point when they're trying to figure out Jesus in his hometown, they say, isn't Jesus the carpenter? And so Joseph apprenticed him in the trade. In other words, as he was a kid growing up, he'd be helping around the shop. Joseph would she teach him. This is how you design a piece of furniture. This is how you cut the wood. This is how you put the wood together. This is how you make the furniture. And Jesus uses that image of apprenticeship of himself and God. What he sees the father doing, the son does likewise. And so Jesus uses this image to try and explain that, that he's God's son. And now the Pharisees just absolutely lose it. They go wingnut crazy and they start frothing at the mouth because Jesus has dared to blaspheme in that sense. Because breaking Sabbath is one thing, but calling yourself God, well, that's a whole different kettle of kosher fish. Let me tell you that. And so I think what Jesus is trying to say to them is that this miracle of healing on the Sabbath is a picture of the future. So in one sense, the Sabbath is looking back at God's rest at the end of creation. But there's another sense in which it's anticipating the end of time when we will rest with God through eternity. And the book of Hebrews talks about it like this. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And Revelation uh, puts it a little differently, but the same thing. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so this miracle is about God healing this specific person on this specific day. But it's also kind of a foretaste. It's an anticipatory kind of miracle of God giving perfect healing to all at the end of time. And Jesus talks about this in verse 21 of that chapter. He says, For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then he says a little bit later, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's trying to say there, I think, that, that this miracle is a miracle of a man who needed healing and received it on this Sabbath day. 
and that all of us need healing in the sense that, that we're sinners who have drifted away from God, run away from God, uh, turned our back on God. We all did it a different way, but the end result is the same, is that spiritually we've died, and we need not just healing, we need new life. And this, this uh, miracle of a man receiving healing on the Sabbath is a kind of a, an acted parable, if you want, of what can happen to us that God will not only just heal us, he will heal us perfectly. He will give us new life. And it's what's promised throughout the Bible. In the book of Titus, he saved us not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter, he talks about it as a new birth. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, earlier in John, we saw that the, John talks about us being born of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, but born of God. And maybe in Corinthians, you know, a, a different image, this new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. In other words, Jesus says, I've come from God to give life. And this miracle here that I did is just a, a, a beginning, a, a foretaste, a, a, just a, a start of what that could look like. Because Jesus said, the thief came only to steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. And the miracle of the lame man was that he was able to do what was previously impossible for him. Not only could he now walk, he could carry his mat, which is sort of, I think, symbolic because the mat was what he was carried on in his illness and now in his health. He carries that symbol of his illness with him. And we kind of just maybe question as we start to draw to a close here, but does this miracle really point to that? Well, I believe that John also wrote Revelation, and Revelation is one of the most picturesque books, and everything has significance, and everything is symbolic in that book. And so I find his use of symbolism and, and kind of uh, these things that point beyond themselves in the Gospel of John to be quite natural. Um, at the beginning, it, he talks about five porches or five colonnades, at Bethesda, and I don't know that John wanted to be an architect. I mean, what difference does it make if there were five, four, or 20? But five often in the Bible kind of refers back to the five books of Moses, those foundational books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In fact, John, uh, Matthew will, will shape his entire gospel where he puts all of Jesus' speeches and, and sermons into five big blocks, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon, you know, where the other Gospels, they kind of are spread out. He puts them into those five because that five is so strongly um, part of the book of Moses. And, and, and for Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses who goes on the hill and gives the new law 
just as Moses went on Mount Horeb and got the Ten Commandments. When he says the man was sick for 38 years, nowhere else does he talk about anybody and the length of time they were sick. In fact, it virtually occurs nowhere in the Bible. And there's only one other place in the whole Bible you really find the, word, the number 38. And again, it, it comes back to that time of wandering in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 2.14, the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. And if you remember the story, the Israelites come out of Egypt and they spend two years at Mount Horeb getting the law and the Ten Commandments. And then they, they go to Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the border, southern border of Israel. And they send the spies in and the spies come back. And, and the majority decision is we can't go in there. And God is so angry with them. He says, I'm going to make you wander in the desert for 40 years. But actually, it's only 38 years from there because he gives them two years off for time served, which is the time at, uh, at Horeb. And so... For the next 38 years, they will get there until they get to the brook Zered, which is right by Jericho, and they will cross the Jordan and capture Jericho. And you remember that story of the walls falling down. But it's this, again, this, it's referring back to the five books of Moses, the uh, wandering in the desert. It's all about that old covenant. And I think it's John's way of saying that the old way led us to this way, but it wasn't sufficient in itself to bring us into the promised land. It wasn't sufficient in itself for us to have this relationship with God that we need where our sins are forgiven and we have this new birth, this fresh start, that we become this new creation. And that Jesus has to come as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the covenant. And with him comes life, and that life for healing now, but also the promise of ultimate healing at the end, on that last Sabbath we call eternity. I have come, Jesus said, that you may have life and have it abundantly. So we started by talking about Valentine's Day. That day we tell significant people in our lives how much we love them and i trust we did that today but how do you do that with god and i think the answer is found in this i think it is that we start by seeing our relationship with him not just as one more part of our life it's not like my work life and my family life and my religious life it's not like my relationship with God is one slice of the apple pie, but there's other slices. It's like my relationship with God is the apple in the apple pie, and it's in every slice, and it affects every slice and flavors every slice. And it's starting over and reprioritizing. It's not that I'm just going to add God to my shelf, and I will have all the things that are important to me there, and God will be one of them. It's allowing him to make us a new creation, to to help us to be born again, and in that our priorities reorder. And then we celebrate Sabbath. It's our way of saying to God that we trust Him and we can rely on Him. And it happens when we stop to celebrate Sabbath. We put aside the work and the tasks 
You see, when we feel we have to work on the Sabbath, and your Sabbath can be Sunday or it can be another day, but I want to suggest to you that we need to build a special day in where we're saying that this is the day we're going to stop and we're going to focus on God. And I know it's hard because, I mean, everything needs to be done. In fact, we need to keep working because the world may not keep turning if we don't. We are indispensable. We can't stop. It's impossible because of our work commitments or our other commitments. We're too busy and too much relies on us. And Jesus comes to us and he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to have life in all its abundance? Do you want to be free of the <coughs> anxiety and the other stuff that's there? So much of our illness and tension comes from this overwork, this inability to stop. And moving our offices home from COVID just allows us to blend those boundaries even more. And God says, do the impossible. Rest on God. For even when it's impossible, the Spirit makes it possible. So here's what I've done. I have deliberately built Sunday morning as my time of worship. I don't come to the church here anymore. I don't uh, come and preach and worship. But I do spend Sunday morning entirely focused on God. I don't do any other work. I don't do any other play. I just spend that time in listening to a sermon, in reading, in praying, in being present with God. And I think the Sabbath is our gift to God. It's our Valentine's Day card and present that says to God, we love him, we trust him, and we care for him. And so we celebrate Sabbath as a way of looking back at all the things God has done. We celebrate Sabbath as a way of stopping from all the things we do to acknowledge God in the present. But we also look forward on Sabbath to that rest at the end. For that time when we will enter God's rest in eternity. Of anticipating when we will become fully that new creation. Ready to spend eternity with him in the new heaven and the new earth. So this morning, it, we started with a man at the pool, a man who got miraculously healed. But so much more than that, because in his physical healing on the Sabbath is a promise of our complete healing on that final Sabbath. When we will spend eternity with God, this new creation, in a new heaven and a new earth. And in that, this call to live each Sabbath as a sign of our trust, as a sign of our love, as a sign of our belief that God is present in the power of His Spirit now, but also our trust that there is a day of rest coming when we will spend eternity with God. And so this, this morning, I just encourage us. What does Sabbath look like? 
And if I can just draw that out for a second, I would say Sabbath looks like a number of different things. So here's just three of them to finish up with. Sabbath looks like a little bit of time each day to spend with God, preferably at the start of the day so that we focus on him for the rest of the day. It's time each week to spend with him. It's time each month. It's why we do communion on a monthly basis because it's that time of reflection. It's that time of confession. It's that time of reminding ourselves on a monthly basis of God's presence in our lives. And this man who was healed on this Sabbath day back so long ago reminds us that God is present to do the impossible in our lives as we rely on him, as we trust in him. As we walk through the busyness of this life, as we anticipate what comes in the next life, we can live in the confidence that God is present and his call upon us always contains the power of the Spirit to do what he calls us to do. And so I invite us into reflection on Sabbath, what it means to rest in God, to rest at the start of a day, to trust him that he will take us through that day, to rest at the start of the week that he will take us through that week, to rest at the start of a month that he will take us through that month, that he will be present in his power. And that each of these is just a small microcosm, just a small teaser of what eternity with him will be like when we are that new creation and we get to spend eternity with him. Father God, we just thank you for this story of this man, the story of how you touched his life. And Father, we thank you that we are that person as well, that you have touched us, that you have given us your spirit, that we can have a new birth, that we can be renewed, that we can live life with abundance, and that we can look forward to that abundant life that follows this. Thank you for security now, for security in the future. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.